0: Ruth chapter 1, and we'll read the whole chapter, and each uh, month or each month of Advent, that would be a long Advent, wouldn't it? Each week of Advent, uh, we'll be dealing with one of the chapters uh, from the book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had, been, uh, after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She then kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. uh, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning." God we are so thankful for this beautiful story this true historical narrative that you preserved in your word the story of Ruth the story of transition, of reversal for Naomi and Ruth and ultimately the story that ends with a genealogy that points ahead to the coming of a king, David, who we know, was promised from his line would come an even greater king. So like all the scripture, God, this ultimately points to Jesus. So we ask today that you'd help us to take your word and hear it and hear what you want to teach us, instruct us, to challenge us, to encourage us. We always, as always, pray this, Lord, for the glory of Jesus, the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if we were preaching through this a little bit longer than four weeks, uh, we would take uh, a little bit of time I'd probably preach a whole message just on the context of the entire book because it's so uh, fascinating and it's it's such an important book in in, in historical uh, unfolding of, of redemptive history. Uh, we don't have that time, um, but I do want to point out a couple things but um, you know so as we think about it it's it's scripture so deep, right? So fascinating. There's a couple levels of application. We Think about application on, on the, the kind of the narrative level and, and, and what this book means and the grand story of scripture. And, and then you, you kind of can go levels below that and you can certainly learn from the examples of Ruth and the examples of Naomi. So when we think application of a book like Ruth, really like all of scripture, you're kind of thinking on, on two different levels. I'm going to try to walk through that in four weeks here. Um, but we don't have time to go in depth, but I do want to give a, a few things here by way of background. One of the things I want you to have in mind as we read this book is, and we saw it right here, right? life was bitter for Naomi. This was really hard. And God shows up in little ways. This is the story of our life, right? If you remember it, I, I know we didn't tell the whole story here, but you, you know back in October, Kath, Kathy's mom uh, died early on a Tuesday morning and uh, you know she was down there and, and we were reeling um, from that news and uh, and while that is unfolding down there that Tuesday Zach is complaining about some issues in his, in his, his abdomen and, and we go Friday, uh, Wednesday morning and, and they said you need to go right to the hospitals around 7.30am Wednesday morning and, um, and just barely 24 hours after mom had died and, and uh, we think he needs to get his appendix out and uh, so when, when, when mom had just died of a, after a routine hip replacement surgery, um, all of a sudden you hear your son has to go in for a routine uh, appendix surgery. That doesn't go over real well with mama bear. Um, it doesn't go over real well with, with dad. And, and, and it's one of those moments, right? And we, you, you have these as well. You're sitting there going, seriously? like Like sometimes you don't make any sense, God, like, couldn't this wait, like, like, now, like, today, and, and sitting in the hospital, and, and Kathy's driving back up here, she's, you know, emotional, she's like, don't let them touch him until I get there, you know, because I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna be there when my son goes to surgery, and, and, uh, so we're sitting there, and, and that day, and and it's kind of frustrated, kind of sad, and, um, as I was processing things that day in the midst of the, the frustration and the sadness, what God did is, you see, Craig, look at this little ways I'm showing up here today, right? And God had to take my attention and, and see some things, right? And so they had, Zach had the wait. We got there at like 8 in the morning, 7.45, 8 in the morning, and his surgery wasn't until 9.15 that night, and, you know, but instead of waiting in one of those little cubicle rooms, now that somehow they had, they had already um, put us into one of the big rooms there at the Children's Hospital, which is beautiful, right? And, and so we're in one of these rooms, and, and that was a little God thing right there, right? And, 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 and Zach loved it. I mean, he couldn't eat, which is miserable for an eighth grade boy, but, you know, he had an Xbox, video games, movies, the Mandalorian comes by to see him, right? And you start going, and all these, like, little things. I'm serious, the Mandalorian came by, it was kind of cool. Um, and and you're like, man, these little things. And then and then uh, these nurses come in, they start talking, and, and Kathy brings up uh, somehow Cedarville came up, and they're like, oh, we you know we know such a, the professor. And you're like, oh, how cool is that? And then this this lady next door, whose child is being treated for cancer, catches Kathy in the hallway. I didn't even know her, and, and says, hey, I, you know, you got, can I pray with you? And you're like, oh, I don't even know this lady. And and then they, they start taking us down to surgery, and the surgical nurse who's going down with us. And we start talking, and we find out her husband's a pastor, and, and her kids are friends with our kids at North Point. And we're like, what in the world? And, and we go down, and after they prep Zach for surgery, like everyone leaves, and she shuts the door, and she turns around, and she goes, now we're going to pray. Right? She usually can't do that. And and you, you, know, you sit back, you see, like, God's saying, I know this is hard, I know this is hard, but I just want you know, I'm here. I'm here. All these little things. And, and that's what we see here in, in Ruth chapter 1. All these little things. In the the midst of our lives, this is one of the points of application I want us to walk away from here in a little bit. Is going, God, this is hard. There's things that are hard, but you're here. I see you. I'm going to choose to see you in the events of my life. Your sovereign hand, your goodness, your kindness. So let's walk through Ruth here and unpack this a little bit. Here's the big picture stuff I alluded to just a minute. A couple significant things I think are important for us to point out as we start this journey into Ruth. Number one, Ruth is about the transition from the chaotic time of the Judges to the establishment of a king in Israel. Okay? Ruth is a transitory book. It's a bridge book. It's significant. Some have even suggested, and this could be within the realm of possibility, that Ruth, one of the reasons why Ruth was penned on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was to transition us from the book of Judges, the time of Judges, to the book of 1 1 Samuel. And that's exactly what it does. It bridges those two books. So that's why we start out in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Right, That's where Ruth starts. We'll get there in a couple weeks, but if you flip to the last, Ruth ends with the genealogy of the monarchy. So Ruth starts at the time of the judges, and it ends with the monarchy. It takes us on this journey, this transition point. Right? It's about the chaotic, it takes place though, in the chaotic times of the judges. Now you guys know, if you know the scriptures, the, day the, judge, the days the judges ruled, uh, this was not a good time in Israel's history. It was a terrible time. This is a time, if you look here, this is the last verse in the book of Judges. If you, if you want some reading this afternoon, go home and read the book of Judges. It's terrible. It's a dumpster fire. There's a couple of good judges and the rest of it was, was trash. And Israel was a, a mess, and, 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 and rebelling, and these cycles of disobedience and conquering. And, and this is how the book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's pretty much the book of Judges for you right there. It was chaotic. There was no central authority. And besides just what was going on in Israel, even on the world stage, the Egyptians, the Hittites, and the Mesopotamians were all in general decline during this time. Amongst the Greeks, there was political upheaval. The sea peoples, the Philistines, were violent. They, they were wrecking havoc all over the Mediterranean basin. This was just a, a terrible time. And as I read it, I mean, does any of this sound familiar? A little bit? Maybe? We live in a time, right, when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, in our culture today, and, 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 and worldwide. It sounds a lot like the time of the judges. Political upheaval and wars and, and disease and all kinds of garbage all around the world, right? This is, this is the world that Ruth takes place in. But I offer this today. Ruth offers hope and encouragement in a couple of ways. First of all, this. God only tolerates the chaos and lawlessness of the period of the judges for so long. This narrative serves as a paradigm for where we are today. right? God will step in again. He only is going to tolerate this for so long. And next time he steps in with the return of Christ, it will be the ultimate turning. right? But God only tolerates. So find hope in that, that we live in this chaotic time, just like the time of the judges, where everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And sometimes it can be so demoralizing and discouraging. God will only tolerate it for so long, and he will step in. The second way I think it encourages us is it shows us the picture of a couple people, particularly Ruth and Boaz, who are still good and noble and kind in a world that is dark and in chaos. It is possible to still have godly characteristics and live God's way in the course of a dark and chaotic world. So that's one of the significant points uh, of of the big picture of Ruth. The other one is this. King David's line, just alluded to this a minute ago, is the ultimate point of the book. The birth of Obed at the end of the book represents a critical link in the sequence of historical events that will climax in the divine election of David as king over Israel. So, the book of Ruth points to David, the king that God would use in these days of lawlessness and chaos. The other thing Ruth is kind of doing here, it exalts and defends the Davidic monarchy by telling the story of David's roots. And I think at some level, the book of Ruth is probably a defense and an apologetic of David's reign. And here's why I say that. There's a Moabitess in David's line. That was a problem for some. The Israelites and the Moabites uh, weren't exactly on the best of, of, of terms. And I think what Ruth is doing is saying, yes, there is a Moabitess in his line, but this Moabitess was probably a greater Jew than even Naomi was. She found her faith and hope in the God of Israel, right? So she's a Moabitess, but she is a true Jew in the sense that she trusts and follows Yahweh, right? We've seen this with Rahab, others, right? So I think that's going on here as well, that this Moabitess in in the Davidic line is legitimate as a follower of Yahweh. I think that's part of what's going on here as well. You see some hints of the defense of this family in David's line in in the first two verses, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Two times, Bethlehem Judah is mentioned twice in the first two verses. Bethlehem Judah. That is significant. We're familiar with Bethlehem, right, this time of year for obvious reasons. Here's where the significance of this little town begins to emerge. And this family is linked to Bethlehem Judah. And in verse 2, they're called Ephrathites. Ephrath, in verse 2, uh, Ephrathites, uh, the name Ephrath, that was the ancient name of Bethlehem. And we see this used as early as Genesis 35, that when, uh, when Rachel dies, uh, they're on their way to Ephrath. So this family had been linked to this area, to this town, forever. They're firmly tied to Bethlehem. Uh, possibly they're an aristocratic, kind of like a first family type um, here in Bethlehem. So the point being made is, is that they were natives of this area. They're not just transplants, this, 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 these people. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts. it kind of be like the Kennedys are to Massachusetts. right? It's, it's, they're associated forever with that state. They're, they're, you know, they're linked to that state, and, and that's kind of what this family, a Limelech family, these are Ephrathites. Um, they have a claim to the area. They're legitimate. Daniel Block in his commentary, writes this. And I had to keep, when we do an Acts, we keep referring to Daryl Bach. He's the New Testament guy. The Old Testament guy is Daniel Block. It messes with my mind sometimes. But this is Daniel Block, Old Testament theologian. He writes this. David does not emerge because of divine manipulation of the ruling class. On the contrary, the seeds of the great dynasty that would arise in the future are being sown in this private family of Bethlehem. This family consists of the most unlikely candidates for divine service. A widow, left without husband or sons. An alien, Ruth, in a similar state. And a bachelor from the humble town of Bethlehem. The big picture here, God is unfolding his plan. Through unlikely means to bring about this monarchy from which the Messiah would come. That's the big picture of Ruth. It's another significant thing about Ruth. Ruth is a story of reversal and turning. The word "turn" or "return," the Hebrew "shuv," is the word it's used 12 times in the first chapter of Ruth. Okay, in the Hebrew language, if a word is used that many times in this short of space, the author is trying to communicate something. Turn, return, turn, turn, return, turn, return, turn, return, twelve times. It's a theme. And I think what's going on here is this. It's an inherent is this understanding that in order for the blessings of Yahweh to be appropriated to you, you must turn to him. Right? If Naomi and Ruth don't turn or return to Bethlehem to rest under the wings of the God of Israel, these things don't come to pass, at least through them. The reversal takes place when they turn to Yahweh, when they turn back to Judah, when they turn away from Moab. Ruth seeks peace and protection in Israel, not in Moab. Some of you sit here today and you're seeking everything in Moab, and you must turn to the God of Israel. That's where you'll find what you're looking for in this life, through Jesus Christ, right? The story of Ruth is rooted in tragedy. We've already talked about the chaotic time of the judges, but beyond that, there's a lot more of tragedy, right? There's a famine in Bethlehem. Famine in Bethlehem. Ironically enough, Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem, Beth, means house. Lechem is bread. It means it's house of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. In other words, the house of bread has no bread. It's, we're going out a famine here. This is a, there's a, there's a pizza hut near where I grew up. Um, and, and we, they, they were terrible on so many levels. Their service was awful. But we went to it. It was the only pizza hut in the country that served Charisse pizza. Charisse is like a Portuguese sign of the high, big Portuguese population where we lived. And Charisse pizza is amazing. But this pizza hut was notorious. Like, literally, I'm not kidding. Notorious for running out of pizza dough. And you're like, you're a pizza hut. Like, how does that happen? Right? It's like Chick-fil-A running out of chicken. Like sorry, we don't have any chicken, but you can have a biscuit. You know, like um, and that's, that's it. The house of Bethlehem, the house of bread, is run out of bread. And this is a famine. This is a real hardship. Sometimes that's lost on us a little bit. I mean, we don't even really can't conceive of this. The dependency on the land, right? For us, food is provided by Meyer. Right? But, but no, they were dependent on the land, and when there was drought and things, that, that drought, it was gone, and it was a true hardship. They experienced hunger, and, and they had two boys. I got two boys. I know what, I know what the oldest one eats, right? This is, this is a problem. You don't have food in the house, right? Um, and, and so here you are, family, two boys, and, and there's no food. This is a real hardship. So they leave their home, and they go to Moab, which, by the way, wasn't exactly a target destination for Israelites, Right? We already talked about this. The history between these two nations is bad. Look at this reference from Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Right? May enter the assembly of Israel, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. In other words, God here is, is citing the sins of, of, of the Moabites. Like when, they came out, when Israel came out of Egypt, they, they went through there, and they were seeking food, and the Moabites said, no, tough luck, keep going. Not even that. Then they hire a, a prophet to come and curse them. So yeah, the relations between these two groups of people weren't exactly stellar, right? In Moab, Jews would be marginalized. Aliens. So this was a serious decision, a desperate decision to go there. Naomi's husband dies in verse 2. Her husband dies in verse verse 3. And you see the shift from his two sons in verse 2 to her two sons in verse 3. These two sons become hers. What this is communicating now is the responsibility that they would have in caring for their widowed mother. So, so far all is well, okay. They're her two sons. She has male care. And then they get married. So cool. They're married now. They're going to have children. And Naomi will be taken care of. But in verse 4, we note that they're married for 10 years. And guess what doesn't happen in those 10 years of their marriage? There are no children, are there? So there's a degree of, there's barrenness. This is getting worse. 10 years of marriage. Should have been enough time for children. And then Naomi's two sons die. So the significance of a woman being left without male protection in this culture, and especially as a Jew and Moabite in a foreign land, uh, this can't be overstated. Right? Being at the mercy of a foreign country can be scary, right? And John and I experienced this a little bit in Brazil a couple summers ago when there was a, a, a misunderstanding. and We're stuck there, and we're, having to, we're at the mercy of the federal police of Brazil and, and, and their bureaucracy and everything else, and you're just like, there's nothing we can do, and, it, and it's intimidating. And that's kind of where she found herself, Naomi's probably past childbearing years. See, this in her statement in verse 12 kind of alludes to this. So here's the tragedy in all this. Her husband's family name will vanish. And again, that's kind of lost on us a little bit today. But one of the greatest tragedies in ancient Israel was for a family to cease to exist. And in verse 5, I think the narrator is making sure that we understand the depth of tragedy here. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is the one thing the NIV does. If you have the ESV, the NIV supplies the name Naomi there, which is fine. It's not a bad thing. It's okay. But actually, the name Naomi is, is not in the Hebrew right there. It's just the woman. The woman lost. And it's almost like the narrator's communicating, like she has lost even her name, even her identity. She's not even Naomi anymore. She's lost everything. And he's almost like rubbing it in there. So we get it, so we understand the depth. It's a gloomy and helpless situation, right? Being just left totally alone, lost, old, childless. And generally, the options for someone in Naomi's situation were were these, poverty, slavery, or prostitution. Pick one. Sounds great, huh? That's where she was. Yet, yet, God begins to reverse Naomi and Ruth's tragic circumstances by providing food again in Judah. All right. Little glimmers, the Mandalorian showing up, video games. She hears there's food again in the house of bread. The fact that she even heard it is God's goodness, right? Didn't have a news feed, wasn't checking CNN or Fox News or whatever. She heard God's grace. God supplies food again. God remembers his people. Right? All things show God's goodness. And so Naomi sets out on the road to Judah along with Ruth and Orpah. Conversation happens on the way back. That's headlined by this point. Ruth remains loyal to Naomi and refuses to return to Moab. This unfolds in verses 8 through 18. Naomi after they started the journey, says to her daughter-in-laws, go, return, in verse 8. This is a double command. It's two commands. Go, return. Indicates the urgency of the situation. Naomi had been an alien in, in Moab. She knew the difficulty. That's why she's so firm in here. She knows what Orpah and Ruth face will face in, in, in Judah, in Israel. She desires her daughters in law to leave so they can go back and have a good life. She says, go find rest. Go find Shalom with another husband there in verse 9. She releases them to go find love and life again. And she blesses them. And in her blessing in verses 8 and 9, we're introduced to another thematic word in the book of Ruth. Kindness. May God show kindness to you as if you have shown to me. This word kindness isn't just being nice. This is hesed. And we're we're, uh, introduced for the first time in the book of Ruth, this key word, hesed. Hesed has to do with the covenant-keeping, faithful love of Almighty God. We're introduced to this her. I mean, that's what she's wishing upon them because that is what they had shown to her, a loyalty, faithfulness. She desires that they be granted security and stability in Moab. It results in loud weeping. On top of everything else now, you have this emotional, terrible goodbye between these women who obviously loved each other. It just keeps getting worse. right? In essence, what she's telling them is that they'd be better off in Moab. Foolish for them to come. So she attempts to reason with her. This is highly logical, right, in her mind. She attempts to reason with them. There's no hope for children. Situation's unreal. It's impossible. Orpah, Ruth, it's a fantasy. Go back. An heir for Elimelech will not happen. Very logical on her part. She's not wrong, in a sense, right? What I love here, though, is I think the narrator... It's setting us up a little bit, preparing us to watch what God does. Because when things are impossible, that's often when God does his best work, right? The stage is being set for the unreal to become real. In verse 13, we see Naomi make this statement. All of this has happened because Yahweh's hand has attacked me. It's quite the stinging accusation. Her complaint against God yahweh has attacked me interestingly enough right naomi's complaint actually affirms god's involvement in her complaint she's actually making a statement that god is not out of control of this situation after her plea or beliefs she does what many would say is the sensible thing right and in the text There's no judgment placed upon her. There's no uh, condemnation for what Orpah does. But, I would say this, what it doesn't do is it doesn't model hesed. And if anything, all her choice does is it highlights the nobility and extraordinary nature of Ruth's action that's coming next. Orpah leaves. Ruth clings to Naomi, who makes one final plea. She says to Ruth, go back to your home and your gods leave. Leave. Well, at this point, Ruth has had enough. And I think here you begin to see a little bit of the tenacity and fire in this woman. You know, this woman who will go out and, man, these flies. Who will go out and, 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 um, man, <laughs> go out and um, harvest all day in a field. You begin to see some of that fire here. She fires back at Naomi by issuing her own command. And then one of the most poetic and iconic responses in all of Scripture in verses 16 through 18 Right? Stop telling me to go. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. I will die with you. Her choice is voluntary. It's done despite opposition from Naomi. She leaves everything, her people, her family, her gods. This remarkable self-sacrifice. All these things, by the way, that she's leaving are the things that people in her day would have put their confidence in but not Ruth, she turns to the God of Israel and identifies herself with the people of God in verse 16. Now here's the thing to me too. Her turning to Yahweh is fascinating given what she's been exposed to from Naomi here. Naomi's account of Yahweh is that basically he's attacking me, he's cruel, he's forgotten me. And in spite of this, Ruth still turns to him. That's why I say that Ruth is actually a noble part of the Davidic line because she is demonstrating what it is to be a true Israelite here and her commitment to Yahweh in spite of all of Naomi's negativity. In verse 17, she even uses the divine name of Yahweh. So she is fully associating her. And and later on, we'll see this next week, in chapter 2, verse 12, even Boaz's assessment of Ruth, under whose wings you've come to Israel, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to find rescue. This affirms the reality of Ruth's turning and the authenticity of her faith. And by the way, if you read this and read leaving your family, your home, your gods, your land, if that sounds like someone else in Scripture, I think that that's intentional. Does it sound familiar? Is there someone else, a great figure in Israel's history who left everything when God told them to leave? Ruth sounds a lot like Abraham doesn't she? I think it's intentional. One of the greatest examples in all of Israel's history. And Ruth looks quite a bit like him and her willingness to leave everything. Ruth's statement about burial in verse 17 is significant as well. It was a big deal to not be buried in your homeland. This was a traumatic thing. Remember Joseph? He made him swear, when you leave Egypt, bring my bones with you and bury me in the promised land. Right? You, did, you, you were buried where you were linked. You were, you were linked to the land. Ruth's commitment here was total and permanent. She would not be returning to Moab even after Naomi's death. And then she goes in verse 17, and Ruth swears her own oath. May God deal with me ever so severely if I leave you. She's stuck with her. Eh? I think in here is a great example for us. Caring for the vulnerable. Caring for those who need our help. Ruth is such a wonderful model of this. This is why the office of things like deacon. This is why deacons are so important. Right? Modeling that care and concern for people who are struggling, people in need. <laughs> so in the face of Ruth's stubbornness, Naomi just gives up. She gives up. She's like, I'm not winning against this woman. I, I thought, so I'm going to have to turn in my man card here, okay? I'll admit it. I... Um, just let me preface this. I have a sister and I have three daughters and a wife, so I've had to, in my life, more than once, watch the entire six month timeline of, of Anna Green Gables, right? Um, and um, it's like forever, right? But I thought immediately um, of this, um, right? So my mom was, was like, Becky, watch Star Wars with you. You're going to watch Anna Green Gables with her. I'm like, Mom, it's two video cassettes long. Like, it's torture, you know? like... So, I've watched Anne Green Gables. This is what I eventually it, it, thought of. I'm like, this is like Marilla and Anne. Right? Marilla was Naomi, the grumpy old woman, bitter, all of this, strong willed, and like Anne just wore her down. Right? <laughs> over, over the course of the six hours of the movie, um, Anne just wears her down. And she ends up being nice at the end, right? And as I thought of, this is Naomi and Ruth right here. Right? Ruth just wears her down, and Naomi's like, forget it. I give up. All right, fine. <laughs> Come with me, right? She commits to follow, while bitter and empty Naomi blames God for her situation. Naomi sees God behind her misery, and God becomes the target of her accusations. And verse 13 the hand of God is against me. The hand of God. Right? She knew her history. She knew what she was saying when she said that. The hand of God is the hand that brought the plagues on Egypt. The hand of God is, is, is what was against uh, God's enemies in Deuteronomy. The hand of God is, is what won the conquest in the promised lands. Naomi's saying that hand that was against Egypt, he's doing the same thing to me he did to Egypt. The same thing to me that he he did to our enemies. That that's what's against me. She is bitter. She calls him Shaddai in verses 20 and 21. Shaddai is the cosmic ruler who oversees all. She knows exactly. He's in charge. He's the ruler, and he's the one letting this happen. She is very bitter. We see the word bitter come up in verse 13. In verse 20, she puts the adjective in front of it. I am very bitter. Call me Mara. By the way, we haven't said this yet, but the name Naomi means pleasant. Stop calling me pleasant. I am bitter. I am bitter. Verse 21, she says, I am empty. I went away full. I've come back empty. Now, here's the truth of the matter. It simply wasn't true, was it? Ruth is standing right there with her. She says, Ruth, this woman who's just committed, like, I will die. I will be with you. I will go with you to the grave. And, and Ruth standing, and Naomi are standing going, I, I've got going, I've got nothing. And if I'm like, Ruth, I'm like, um, I'm, I'm right here. <laughs> yeah, does that make her feel? It's like, I've got nothing. It's not a true statement. On top of this, we'll see in chapter 4 that that Naomi actually owned land as well. She had a plot of land in Bethlehem. That's part of what Boaz was bidding for. So she's not really empty, but in the context of her situation and of her bitterness and anger and her complaining, all she chooses to see is the bad and the negative. She's fixated on what she doesn't have and her complaints She knows God can bless. She's already invoked the blessing on Orpah and Ruth, but she just doesn't see it for herself. But before we're too critical on Naomi, this is often how it is for us, right? That's how I can be. I'm bitter. Things don't go the way I want them. I don't get what I want. Everything stinks all of a sudden. Everything's terrible. I'm a grumpy old Eeyore, right? And I stop seeing the little things that God gives me and does. So her characterization of God is, is wrong, right? But let's not be too harsh on Naomi. These were difficult circumstances. They were crushing. Her open and public complaint is not unlike the responses of Job and Jeremiah and even Abraham as they suffered and struggled. Her view of God has become blurred and flawed. In verses 20 and 21, there are seven uses of the pronoun me or I. She's only one of I. It's all me. Me, 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 I. Right? All the focus is on her. Lawson writes in his commentary, Naomi's entire uh, com- uh, complaint is singular in its orientation. Self-absorption in the midst of pain and affliction is understandable, yet it always blinds a person from God's greater plan and the small ways in which God may be working his plan out. All about me. And I forget God's goodness and the ways he has been good. Well, the passage ends with a ray of hope, verses 21 and 22. It says, she came back. Naomi came back bitter in her mind. She came back empty. But she came back. She came back. Actually, in verse 21, we see that the Lord had brought her back. And she returns with Ruth the Moabitess. There's hope here. At the beginning of the barley harvest, it ends on a note of hope. What's going to happen next? Stay tuned next week, right? There's a note of hope. It's a way of application as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning. We need the king to step in the chaos and lawlessness of our lives and world, right? We live in a time of the judges. We need the king to step into the chaos of our lives. Next, God's hand is behind every circumstance and situation in my life, just like it was here. Next, look for God's faithfulness and care during the trials of life. Look for God's faithfulness and care in the trials of life. Right, he'll, He's there. He'll show up. Um, a few weeks back, I was just having a terrible morning. Here, I was in my office, and I, don't even, it just, it was, it was bad, and I was just in a funk, and. I was frustrated and I didn't know all the reasons why. And I remember walking out to go to lunch and I just remember God going, God, I, I just need you to show me that you care a little bit, something. I went to lunch and I came back and I opened the door of my office and I see in there this pile of my favorite snacks on the floor. And uh, with an envelope with a stack of, of notes from one of our hub groups, all three by five cards, verses, scripture written on them. I started to cry. My situation didn't change, but God said, I'm here. I'm here. He'll he'll do that. Maybe not in that way, but he'll do that. Prepare for the storms that are coming. Storms are coming. Things that you don't like are coming. Your response, well, you're going to have a choice. Be bitter like Naomi. But listen, how we respond when God brings hardship into our lives often determines further outcomes. And it's easy to sit here now and say amen, but God's sovereignty is harder to accept when the suffering actually comes, when we don't get what we want or what God thinks we should do. Turn to God. By the way, the choice of Ruth, and we won't take the time to look at these passages now, but it's a choice that faces all of Christ's disciples. Turn, leave, father, mother, leave homes, lands, right? Understand this too. Human logic cannot always be trusted. Talked about this. Naomi's highly logical. What she said made a lot of sense. But think about it. If Ruth goes back to Moab, the means by which God had chosen to reverse the circumstances of Naomi's life goes with her. So if Ruth had listened to human logic here, we wonder if Naomi ever would have seen the reversal. We must show Hesed love, commitment in order to care for those in need. I've seen, observed this so wonderfully my wife as she's cared for her dad here in recent days. It's that commitment. And here's the last thing as our worship team comes on up. We wander, but God does seek to bring us back, even if we're broken, empty, and bitter when we come back. The question is whether or not we will turn. But those who do turn and return to their God, the true God, will not be turned away.